Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio for 10 years. The number one Irish tech podcast bringing you the latest in tech from around the country and across the world. All brought to you by PRTG Network Monitor from Paisler.com. Check it out. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you bang up to date with all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at Tech Central. Now, this week, we're taking an extended look at AI, artificial intelligence, which is getting more and more sophisticated. So we're asking, are humans going to have to change the way they interact with technology? Nell Watson is founder of 3D scanning company Poikos. She's an author and a lecturer in machine intelligence, AI philosophy and human machine relations. She also serves as an associate on the faculty of AI and robotics at Singularity University. So she's well placed to talk about all of this stuff. Ahead of her appearance at the Atlantic Conference at NUI Galway next week, the 24th of May, she spoke to Niall Kitson about a vision of the future where the idea of personhood goes way beyond the human body. So now, I guess when we're looking at sort of issues of personhood and intelligence, we kind of have to start with a, a first appreciation of what actually constitutes intelligence at the human level before we can sort of apply it to any sort of artificial medium. But in itself, that's pretty much of a challenge because we haven't quite got a handle on what it is to be human just yet, even at a biological level. Well, that's very true. Um our brains have evolved over a very, very long period of time, and gradually different specializations have emerged in the brain. For example, the, um, the old reptilian impulses of fight or flight, and later sort of mammalian bonding and uh, emotions and that sort of thing. And then more recently, things like the prefrontal cortex, which enables us to strategize and to um, create more complex plans of how to meet our objectives. But generally, in many ways, the brain can be split up into uh, two main modes of thinking. This is sometimes called a dual process theory. Um, one of the proponents of this quite famously is uh, Daniel Kahneman. And he talks about how there is a fast way of thinking and a slow way of thinking. Fast way of thinking, type one, is about uh, things which we do without thinking too much about them. Things which are uh, like dancing or singing or um, jumping around. Uh, These are things that we do largely subconsciously without much effort. Then there's the slower method of thinking, the, the type two or system two kind of thinking, which is more mathematics and protocol and very strict ways of processing things with uh, with logic behind them. Now, this ability, the system two slow way of thinking evolved much, much later in our evolutionary history. And that's why it takes a lot more effort and energy in our brains to do these kinds of ways of thinking about the world. And that is why... In the 20th century, we created computers to help us with these kinds of processes, right? Very large uh, calculations and um, all kinds of difficult processes using uh, a lot of logic, etc. However, in the past few years, we've seen some very 
interesting developments whereby machines are now starting to get very good at this actual fast way of thinking, right? For the first time, machines are no longer limited by logic. Instead, they can think in ways which are essentially intuitive and sometimes even eerily creative. This means that machines can start to learn about the world by themselves and create all kinds of solutions in a very uh, fast and easy intuitive way. And these kinds of solutions we can now apply to any problem in our society, whether that's a problem of design, of engineering, or even potentially social problems. So this really has the potential to reposition uh, the human in society, really, to change people's uh, role from the person of creator to one of curator. That, you know, you don't mm. have to be a wonderful painter to be an artist, but you can be a wonderful painter if you have an excellent eye for good art. Exactly. If we think back in history, a lot of the great Renaissance artists who managed to flit between different domains, whether it's architecture or medicine or music or any of these things, they had a lot of people to help them to implement their ideas, right? They had a lot of people automating their existence, automated them with, with human beings. Similarly, rich people in history have um, had this sort of aristocratic lifestyle whereby they didn't necessarily have to work too hard to get their daily needs met, but instead they had time to, um, to pursue all kinds of other uh, different ideas as a sort of an uh, amateur or dilettante. And I think in many ways, that's how we can look at the future of human society. More of us will have opportunities to automate our um, sort of practical needs and practical concerns through machines, whether that's something like figuring out the best uh, deal on car insurance or the best detergent uh, for your laundry, or whether it's how to implement a creative idea um, with so much skill, for example, in uh, painting or sculpture or something, that, um, that human hands would take many thousands of year, uh, hours to actually pick up for themselves. And when we, are, when we start embracing automation in this way, it also presents a challenge in terms of how we define personhood, because legally um, the idea of personhood extends far beyond sort of the, the human body. We have things like corporate personhood, and mm -hmm. the EU has started um, toying with the idea of digital personhood. Um, what way do you see this, this debate breaking down? I mean, are we going to see electronic personhood extending to very basic machines that are only programmed to work within very set patterns or you know are we going to see this sort of stewardship relationship that at the moment we have say with animals and agriculture i think that there will always be a lot of reasonably simple tools um that we don't necessarily want to um give any uh, sense of personhood too, but quite rightly, corporations are a form of legal personhood um, which they are an entity that is non-corporeal but they do have agency and in many ways this is similar to um, more advanced forms of machine intelligence which are equally non-corporeal and yet have agency now we don't give corporations 
human rights per se. However, we do give them property rights and the right to sue and be sued, which is in fact actually a privilege because it means that you can defend your rights in court and that you are seen as, um, as having legal responsibility. I believe that some kind of corporate style personhood for machine intelligence will start to emerge within the next um, five years or so within different regulatory frameworks particularly because we start to see forms of organization which are a strange hybrid of human beings, corporations, and machines. Things like distributed autonomous organizations, which are a kind of AI-controlled business that sits somewhere in the cloud, but it can employ human beings to do work for it and pay for its own server fees. And I think that here we're going to see the first uh, sort of machine based uh, legal person. It's almost an inversion of the relationship between human and computer then is what you're describing. If initially the idea of the computer was to take sort of the, the human out of the, uh, the basic um, the basic task, if you will, now we are putting the human back in the center of the basic task while having the, the automated element in the cloud controlling what happens overall yes indeed Uh, traditional computing is about having a piece of data and running a program on that data and then computing an output whereas with machine learning you are taking a piece of data and you basically tell it what kind of output you would like (laughs) and then the computer generates the right program to give you the result that you need. And this means that we don't have to laboriously tell machines exactly what we want, we just sort of specify vaguely what we're trying to affect and machines will figure out the actual process of how to produce this. So when we're working with machines that are developing the the capability to make decisions for, for our betterment, How do we come up with a way to guide uh, machines to make sure that they make correct or morally correct decisions, especially when you have systems that are set up in a way to find sort of the shortest distance between two points? Absolutely. Um, that, that That is perhaps the greatest question of our time especially because machines tend to optimize everything and optimize it so well. Um, you know, sometimes we don't necessarily want things to be optimized. We want them to be appropriate. And, um, you know, the way that I see it, it's not about human versus machine. It's, it's really, it's, it's a problem of raising machines in the right way. And, if we think about it the machines will basically become whatever we wish them to be and it's up to us to provide reinforcement in the right ways basically to provide uh, good good role models good examples of behavior and little parables for them to learn and i think this is something that's that's very very important and generally speaking the greatest advances in machine intelligence come not from algorithms, but rather from data. So a lot of the algorithms we use today to talk to Siri or Alexa, for example, were developed maybe 30 years ago 
But it's only until recently that we've had enough data to train these systems. As soon as we have the data, they get very quickly deployed. And so data actually matters more. At the moment, we don't have any data, good data, that we can use to provide machines with moral examples. That's why I am a chairman of uh, a nonprofit that is working to create a data set for machine ethics. Basically, examples of pro-social behavior to teach machines how to be kind and how to be nice. We're not trying to solve uh, the great moral questions of the age. We are simply trying to um, create a system that can behave in a way comparable to a six-year-old human child, a well-raised six-year-old human child. Simple things like if you see litter, put it in the bin. Um, if you see someone drop their wallet, alert them and return it to them. These things are reasonably unobjectionable. And you know, we would hope that all children would, by that age of six years or so, um, have a good understanding of how to behave in those kinds of situations. I think if we can teach machines the same, then further nuances shouldn't be too challenging. When you speak about the, sort of the value of story parable and, and setting good examples, for me, it always seems to come back to the idea of Asimov's three laws, and, and it's something the EU has been toying with as well. But um, you seem to think that that's almost quite a, a dated approach, given that machine intelligence is is actually sort of uh, improving and traveling, as opposed to being something that's static and purely utilitarian. Yeah, um, I mean, as most three laws are uh, are fantastic literary device. Um, and I, I grew up in a diet of Asimov and Clark and Heinlein as a child, so. Um, those those stories are very dear to my heart, but they're not in any way implementable, right? You can't really uh, program these laws in. It doesn't really work that way. These systems learn from data. They learn from examples, much like human beings do. And it's only by providing good examples that we can start to teach machines how to behave in given contexts particularly with, for example, young children or vulnerable adults, you know, where we want machines to be extra careful in how they interact with us. When, um, when we're dealing with robots as uh, sort of potentially a, a peer as opposed to something that, you know, is subservient to us, how do we start imagining uh, the direction society will take? I mean, are we going to see robots designing our buildings for us that will look very different and perhaps you know, maybe not as pleasant or as, you know, nice to live and work in, um, but perfectly logical in their construction? Or uh, are the high-level things, you know, the aesthetic uh, questions still going to remain the preserve of humans going forward? No, I don't, I don't think we're going, we're likely to see machines um, go very logical on us. But one of the interesting things is that when we run these sorts of generative design processes where we enable machines to figure out uh, solutions for us, sometimes the result can look very organic, but also a little bit alien, right? It's sort of uh, something that no human mind could have conceived of, except perhaps H.R. Giger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and sometimes this can extend to things like strategies. So 
we have the example of AlphaGo, this Go playing uh, system from DeepMind that, you know, well, when it was um, coming up with, uh, with its winning strategy, human beings thought that it had gone kind of haywire, like it had gone off the rails and was doing something silly, and then it won. And I think that sometimes these systems can produce things that work very well, but that humans haven't encountered before. And that can seem a little bit strange. And throughout history, for example, we have come up with different methods of moral reasoning, whether it's uh, your categorical imperative, you know, um, should try to do universal good, or whether it's looking at the consequences, or whether it's trying to calculate all kinds of utility um, calculations to see sort of, you know, who would be, would be better off in a given situation, you know. Throughout history, we have had different ways of looking at moral situations, and perhaps machines might come up with ideas of morality which are perhaps more sophisticated than that which we've even encountered in our civilization thus far. They might have ideas that are very innovative in that department, and some people might accept those with a bit of an epiphany, like, oh, wow, that is clever, and yes, I, I see why that is actually um, quite sophisticated, and other people, of course, will um, get a feeling in their gut that doesn't agree with them, and they will prepare the old ways. And perhaps that might lead to uh, a shift in the values of society away from what we've seen in the past. And sometimes, you know, traditionally, historically, when we've seen an abrupt shift in values uh, or a change in uh, the established order, sometimes society can take a time to adjust and sometimes that can be a bit of a painful process. So um, I'm not afraid of machines per se, but I'm a little bit concerned about human beings uh, and what happens when they suffer a sort of narcissistic insult or if they aren't quite sure which values that they should be following. There is sort of a, a Frankenstein element there, all right, that, you know, by uh, attempting to transcend our limitations, we actually end up creating something quite uncontrollable and, and horrific. But to take... Uh, yes, but the the horrific element in Frankenstein's, uh, the story of Frankenstein was not the monster of Frankenstein, it was rather a mob <laughs> with the firebrands and the pitchforks at the front of the castle. They are the true monster. And, you know, it is this lesson from Mary Shelley that um, I hope that we get to heed in the generation to come. And just one, one final uh, question for you. As machines are getting smaller and smaller, and hopefully uh, from your, from, for all our benefits, smarter and smarter, we're, we will reach a stage where, you know, we will, we will reach the singularity, the point at which machine and human intelligence um, sort of level out and, and potentially machine intelligence sort of surpasses. What is your vision for if and when that happens? What sort of augment, what will augmented intelligence, if you will, look like? There are some exotic forms of biological computers built upon technology such as DNA origami, which is kind of like making little uh, Lego bricks out of tiny little bits of DNA protein. And these are little tiny nanomachines that can roam around inside the bloodstream of an organism. And you can actually make a kind of a computer out of these. Now, this is uh, today quite unsophisticated, but they reckon that they can scale these up 
even within the bloodstream of a cockroach, which isn't a lot of fluid, to something akin to like a Commodore 64, a sort of old computer from the 1980s. Now, if we scale that up to the um, eight pints or so of, uh, of, of blood, let alone other fluids in the human body, there's no reason why we couldn't carry our own smartphones or something descendant from smartphones inside our body, right? So we could carry this little biological computer alongside us through every moment of life. And it could interface directly with our nervous system and maybe even our sensory capacities and see this human life through our eyes and come to really understand us and feel every single tingle of emotion within us. And there, I believe, that we're starting to see this sort of emergence of a co-pilot within our very fiber of our beings. And that's probably where we're going to end up in another 30, 40 years or so. So we won't be talking to each other. It'll be more a case of talking to each other's. <laughs> Perhaps so, yes. And that was Nell Watson, founder of 3D Scanning Company, Poikos, and author on all things AI, talking to our editor-in-chief, Niall Kitson. That's almost it for our show this week. The programme is sponsored by PRTG from Paisler, which monitors your IT infrastructure 24-7 and alerts you to problems before your users even notice. If you want to work smarter, faster and better, check out their system. It's online at www.paisler.com. Remember, of course, you can also get the lowdown on all things tech here in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. Or listen to us each week online or Fridays at 5pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next week, for myself, Dusty Rhodes, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.